Yeah. Well, sorry. Sorry that it's a, it's a downgrade from last week. So um, my wife's here, Christy, and uh, she, will, she will attest that Nate is way better than us. So, and uh, my son James and his wife also fellowship here. So that's awesome. So there's a connection between uh, the church in Vero Beach, Florida, and the church here. Um, there's another interesting connection. Um, you know, Josiah and his wife are both from Southern California, both from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa originally. Um, I was a school teacher there for nine years. And uh, Josiah was younger. I, I taught in the high school. And, uh, but his, his brother, Robert, was one of my students. So when I first, I met Josiah actually in England. And when I met him, he says, I think you know my brother. And uh, so if you're a teacher, do you have any teachers in the room? Okay, awesome. You guys are great. Thank you for what you do. But also, if, if you remember a student from 20 years ago, were they a good student or a bad student? <laughs> That's just a question. I'm not going to provide an answer. So just going to throw it out there. I'm just going to say I remember Josiah's brother really well. That's all. That's all I'm going to say about that, so nothing else to say. Didn't have Josiah, but uh, anyway, super blessed to be here, and uh, let's go ahead and pray as we get into the Word. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your church, and thank you, Lord, for what you've designed it to be in our lives. Lord, this place that we can gather collectively to worship, this place, Lord, where we can be instructed from your Word. But this place also, Lord, where we can, where, where iron can sharpen iron and friendships can be made and, and we can walk this journey together. So thank you for the work that you're doing here. And we just pray your hand to continue to be upon it. And we pray, Father, for you to bless the teaching of your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, Josiah uh, asked me if I would carry on through the teaching series that you're in in Second. Corinthians. So if you'd open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I've had this weird cough and uh, it's a dry cough. I asked my doctor about it and he said, there's lots of reasons to have a dry cough. If that's your only symptom, that's wonderful. Um, and, uh, but it's just, my throat just kind of closes up sometimes. So if I get halfway through the Bible study and my throat closes up, it just means you get to go to lunch sooner. So it's like, it's, it's like what you've been praying for, church to end early. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, I'm going to read to you uh, starting at verse 2, and we're going to read through uh, verse 12. Paul writes, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in your tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you 
when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regarded, or sorry, regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, but for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So <clears throat> in this letter um, of 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the church. He has a, he has a very close relationship with the church. Um, he founded the church. He was their pastor for a year and a half, um, and he had been in uh, constant communication with them. Although this letter is called 2 Corinthians, we know it to be actually the third letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, that, one, of, one of the things we learned from that is not everything that Paul wrote was scripture. Okay? So if Paul wrote a thank you note to a friend, it didn't make it scripture. If Paul you know, wrote, uh, wrote directions to the local chariot race on a napkin at the restaurant, that wasn't scripture. Okay? It wasn't just scripture because Paul wrote it, um, but uh, certain things that Paul wrote were inspired by God. And so we have this constant communication between Paul and the Corinthian church. And in 2 Corinthians, um, Paul has an experience in uh, a little later. You'll get there in a few weeks. But in chapter 12, he talks about being in, in, in these, these uh, very difficult circumstances. He doesn't describe them. He illustrates them. It's the passage where he says that a messenger of Satan has been sent to buffet him, and he has a thorn in his flesh. Okay, now, that wasn't literal. Paul wasn't like, you know, the, like he, I've got this, I stepped on this thorn and I can't get it out of my heel. Um, he's not speaking literally. He's not describing his circumstances. He's illustrating. It feels like this. And it feels like Satan's beating me up. He's not literally getting in a fight every night with Satan, but that's what it feels like to him. And so he does what every one of us does when we're facing circumstances that are very difficult. We pray for God to change our circumstances, correct? I mean, we, none, of us are, none of us love pain and anguish and suffering and can't wait for the next dose of it. And so we pray for God to, to change the circumstances. What happens in Paul's case, in this particular case, it's not always the case, sometimes God changes the circumstances. But in this particular case, God does not change Paul's circumstances, but God promises to infuse his grace into Paul's circumstances. He promises to meet Paul in the midst of that and reveal things to Paul that he wouldn't otherwise get to know about God. It's, it's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Uh, Paul writes and he says, He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. 
And one of the things we see in this letter, 2 Corinthians, we see there's actually a lot of different scenes where Paul and others are facing difficulty and God infuses grace into the situation. So he, he tells them like this, Paul reveals this personal experience in chapter 12 where it happened. But then as he goes through, this, through the letter, there's actually quite a few cases where it's like, hey, I'm struggling. In fact, 2 Corinthians begins talking about the God of all comfort who comforts us in our tribulation. It's kind of a theme that works its way through the book. God meeting us in our difficulty. Now, what we're going to see in our text that we've just read through is we're going to see two different scenes. The first scene is Paul and the experiences that he's having. And the second scene is the Corinthians and the experience that they're having. And what we're going to see is their experiences are very similar, but we're going to see that the cause is very different. Now, in, in the medical world, um, we recognize that, that there's a lot of different causes that, that, that reveal themselves with similar symptoms. When a, when a person goes to doctor school, and in doctor school, they don't learn that, okay, listen, if somebody has a dry cough, give them the blue pill, right? Because there's a host of different reasons for a dry cough. Somebody comes in and they have a weird skin irritation. It's like, oh, oh that's the yellow pill. And so if you have skin irritation, it's the yellow pill, right? It, we understand, no, there's a host of different things that can cause a skin irritation. And, 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 and what we have to do is diagnose what is causing it if we're going to be able to prescribe the proper remedy. Does that make sense? Right? So if, if you have a friend and, and your friend's shoulder hurts and your shoulder hurts and your friend goes to the doctor and your friend has, has you know, the, the, the shoulder examined and they say, oh, look it, you've got this problem with your bicep tendon. And so the, so the solution for you is that you need to do these exercises to build up the muscles around the bicep tendon. So you're doing these exercises to build up the muscles around it, right? And it's, it's building those muscles around it. And they say, listen, if you do that, you're gonna release the tension on that and you're gonna actually find healing. So they come and tell you that and you go, oh, stoked. I'm gonna do the same thing. Does that work for you? What if you have a torn rotator cuff, right? You're, you understand, like I'm, I'm trying to make the point that, that the same symptoms can have different causes and it's important for us to recognize the cause if we're going to alleviate the symptoms. And, and in our text, Paul's going to describe his symptoms, and then we're going to see a cure. And then Paul's going to describe the Corinthians' symptoms, and we're going to see that the cause is way different. And since the cause is way different, the cure is also way different. Does that make any sense? Okay, it did to me, so that's why I wrote it down. So... Let's, let's jump into this. Let's take a look at Paul's, Paul's symptoms. Look at verse 6 again. Verse 6, Paul writes, Nevertheless, God, who comforts the, what's that word? Downcast, comforted us. The, Paul describes himself as what? Downcast. Now, downcast is one of those words that actually has the definition built into the word, right? Okay, you just flip it around. Downcast means to be? You guys kill it. So good. Okay, so good. So it must be the donuts. But, okay, you're downcast. You're cast down. You, you, you know, you've some experience or some circumstances have caused you to feel 
as though you are heartbroken or you're, you know, you've got the weight of the world upon you and you're, you're struggling through that. Paul gives some further description um, in verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. Paul says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, and inside were fears. The word troubled is a word that means to press against. Okay? It's like putting something in a vice and turning the crank of the vice, and you continue to put more and more and more and more pressure on it. When I was a, a kid growing up, we had this kind of wanky um, uh, workbench that my dad had built in the garage and some old beat-up tools and stuff. And my dad was a college professor, and he was, he was skilled at certain stuff, but he wasn't super into home projects. But he had a few tools. And one of the tools he had was he had this, this vice. And so as a kid, I would just find stuff and put it in the vice and just crank it. Okay? And fruit is fun to put in the, in the vice. Because like what happens is you know, as, it, as the pressure continues to push on it, 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 gets, it gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter until ultimately the insides are on the outside. Right? That's the word Paul uses. Paul says, I am an orange and I'm in the vice of life. And it's squeezing down upon me. Now, that's not literally what he said, but that illustrates what that word is, to be pressed down upon. The term uh, no rest is a word that means to have no ease or no release. We know that, we know that certain things have pressure valves, and the, the pressure can become so intense, and the way to release the, the tension is to turn the valve, right? You let the pressure out. Um, nowadays, it's popular to cook with, uh, with uh, Instapots, right? Okay, have you, we have Instapot cookers in the room? Okay, awesome. Um, we have people that like to eat the food that other people cook in the room, so thank you. Um, you know, when I grew up, my, my mom had a pressure cooker, right? It's the same thing, essentially, but it was the old school Instapot, and it, it, it was intense pressure. And before you could open up the lid, after you put something in there to cook for several hours, you had to release the pressure valve at the top. You can't just pop open that lid without releasing the tension. And when you release tension on a pressure valve, what does it sound like? <laughs> I love men. Men are awesome. My, my wife always says, man, like you guys just make the weirdest noises. Okay? But there wasn't any hesitation. Like, like dig, I'm looking out here at some dignified people. And as soon as I said that, they went, Psss. <laughs> It's unbelievable. But... Paul's saying, listen, I'm under this, I'm the, I'm the orange and the vice, and I'm getting squeezed by the circumstances of life, and there's no pressure valve to release this. He, he uses uh, the term conflict. Conflict is a term that can mean quarrel or fight, and he uses the word fear, and that's a word that means terror or dread. Can I tell you that those are not good words? Okay. If you ever wonder if the Bible's full of bad words, it is. These are terrible words. You know, these are not words that, like, like, when you woke up this morning, you thought, you know what I'm hoping for? Some conflict and some fear and some dread. That would be a great Sunday. Okay? These are, these are things we want to avoid. And Paul's saying, I'm living in the midst of these things. That's what I'm facing. That's what life is giving me right now. Notice how he describes it, verse 5. He says that it was on every side. Do you notice that phrase? I've got these things, and they're on every side. Now, when I think of every side... I think of right side, left side, or top side, bottom side, or front side, back side. But notice how Paul says it. 
He says, on every side, outside and inside. He said, I've got all of these pressures on the outside, and they're producing something on the inside, right? There's tension. There's, there's difficulty going on around me. My external circumstances are producing in me internal emotions that are very difficult to deal with. And that's life, isn't it? Right? Something, something on the outside triggers something on the inside, and it's the inside that's the real battle. It's the inside that's the real struggle. It, it, it weakens us. It defeats us. It, it makes us feel like we can't go on or that life is hopeless. Paul's saying, I'm in a circumstance like that. Now, unfortunately, this can kind of be secular. And what can happen is we can have difficult outside circumstances. They produce these challenging internal emotions. And those internal emotions cause us to then make poor decisions that make the outside things even worse, right? I mean, has that ever happened to you, right? My, my favorite television, television commercial of all time, I could watch it on loop. It's the Geico ad where it's a parody on horror movies. Have you seen that one? So you've got these four young adults. It's like this scene, like a horror movie. They're running, and one of them yells, let's hide in the attic. And the other one yells, can't we just get in the running car? They go, are you stupid? Or something like that. Let's hide behind the chainsaws. And they run in, and they're in this you know, barn with all these gnarly death trap things. And then there's the, the horror guy, you know, whatever he is. And, and he's got his weird mask on. And he looks at these guys inside this death trap. And he lifts his mask up. And he looks at him like, like you guys are idiots. <laughs> You're running from me. And then they run out of there, and somebody says, let's hide in the graveyard. And, just, and then, you know, Geico, you know, like, when you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. And I just think it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And, and, uh, but it's also descriptive of sometimes what life is like. We have things happen to us. They stir up these emotions, and then we, we make foolish decisions, and we can make the circumstances even worse. Paul is saying, listen, I'm facing... Life and life is putting pressure on me, and this pressure is igniting internal struggle within me. That's my experience. But I want you to, to take a look that Paul continues. He, he tells us something else that happens. Look again at verse 6. He says, after describing that external and internal struggle, he says, Nevertheless, God who what? Comforts who? The downcast. I'm, I'm knocked down by these things. But God brings comfort. Here's the first thing that I'd like you to take away from our time together this morning. God brings comfort. Okay? God brings comfort. Life is going to challenge you. Life is going is to ignite things in, inside of you. It's going to make things difficult for you. Sometimes it's going to feel like there's no rest, no ease, no pressure release valve. But listen, God brings comfort. That's what Paul says. He says, God comforted me in the midst of my condition. This is something we see reoccurring throughout Scripture. The, the psalmist, again, this is not a description of his experiences. It's a poetic illustration of what he's going through. But the psalmist in Psalm 40 describes the, these conditions in his life. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. Quick pause. W what does that mean to incline to someone? 
What does that mean? Here's the idea of leaning towards, right? Okay, you're like, like I, I'm always accused by my wife of being a low talker. Okay, I, I, if you're a Seinfeld fan, you know what that is. But, but I'm like, a, I'm a low talk. I, I tend to, I tend to not project my voice as loudly as I need to project my voice when I'm saying something. And she'll say to me all the time, like, I can't understand what you're saying. And I think to myself, that was by plan and design. But no, I'm teasing. That's not really. But, but like, but listen, if she's going to understand what I'm saying often, she's just got to incline. She's got to lean towards. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and God leaned towards me. What a beautiful picture, isn't that? In trouble, in difficulty, and God is leaning towards you. He goes on to say this. He heard my cry, and he brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock. He established my steps. He put a new song in my mouth, even praise to our God, and everybody's going to see it. Now, again, he's not describing. He's not saying, hey, I was walking home from school one day, and, and I wasn't paying attention, and I fell into this pit. At the bottom of this pit was this murky, gooey mud, and I was stuck there. I said, God, help me, and God sent a rope, and he pulled me out. And I'm so happy, and I sang the rest of the way to school, right? That's not what he's not describing an event in his life. He's illustrating a circumstance that he's in, a difficulty. He says, I felt like I was in the pit, stuck in the mud, and there was no hope. And God brought me out because God comforts the downcast. In, in uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is describing his circumstances. He sounds a little bit like Job. You know, woe is me. The whole world's out to get me. The whole world's so bad. And uh, in the midst of that, Jeremiah penned these words. He said, your words were found and I ate them. What a great picture, right? Like your words were found and what did I do? I consumed, I took them in. There's a lot of times in your Bible where, where things are illustrated that way. The, the Passover, the, the Passover, God gives this meal. It wasn't to, you know, you make the meal and then you set it out and you take pictures of it and you post it on Instagram. He says, no, you take this meal and you consume it. You have to take it in. The, 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 um, uh, the, the Lord's Supper, right, communion. You, you take this bread and eat it, take it in, put it in yourself, digest it yourself. The word of God is like food. It needs to be consumed. It needs to be taken in. He says, your words were found in my trouble, and I took them in. And your word, he says, was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. And so Jeremiah found that comfort from God when he consumed or took in, personally took hold of the promises of God. Paul says, I was downcast, and God comforted me, and often... That comfort comes when we'll embrace the promises of God. I want you to look at verse 6 again, because verse 6 tells us a little bit more fully how it was that Paul received that comfort. Verse 6 says, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by what? You're getting worse, okay? You started out pretty good, and then you, you sort of slowed down. It's like the, it's like the long plane flight. You're like six hours into a 12-hour flight, and you're like hopeless. Okay, so let's kind of reignite, you know, push the call button. Let's get a soda in you. Um, verse 6 again. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by what? The coming of Titus. This character shows up. Titus shows up. And when Titus showed up, comfort was brought to Paul. He's downcast. His circumstances igniting these emotions within him. He's feeling hopeless. 
God has comfort for him, and the comfort comes when Titus shows up. Now, this is particularly interesting because back in chapter 2, we have a, another situation that Paul's in and another reference to Titus. Go back over to chapter 2 real quick in your Bible and take a look at verse 12. Paul writes, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. Okay, so Paul came to Troas with a purpose, to preach the gospel. When he got there, he had an open door to do it. We know an open door, again, is illustrative language to speak about, I had an opportunity. Something was dropped right in my lap. I don't know if you've ever had that. You know, there's that passage in, in Acts chapter 2 where Peter's preaching and then the people say, what must we do to be saved? That's an open door, okay? I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. Um, I have. I've actually had people say to me just randomly, I was a brand new Christian. I had a bumper sticker on my car. I can't remember what it said, but I had a Christian bumper sticker on my car. I, I was, I mean, I was like brand new to being a Christian. Um, Nate was here last week. He talked about how you're made holy as soon as you get saved. And then the holiness process starts and God does a work and you grow and develop. Okay. My holiness process hadn't quite started yet. Okay. I was like brand new. All, my holiness was I put a bumper sticker on my car and uh, I'm driving down PCH and Huntington Beach and I'm turning left onto Newland and, uh, and I'm in the left turn lane. And this guy pulls up next to me, and right as the arrow turns green, um, I, the air conditioning I had in my car was rolled down the windows. And, uh, and the guy pulls up next to me on a motorcycle, and he says, he says, hey, what do I have to do to get saved? And I'm like, uh, uh. And he starts riding off. I'm like, believe in Jesus. Okay. And I felt pretty good about myself for knowing that much. Okay, but, but so, so listen, Paul has an open door. He's there with a purpose. I'm going to preach the gospel, and he's got a wide open door to do it. Look at verse 12 again. I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel. A door was opened to me by the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. I was struggling. I was going through it, and Titus wasn't there. And he says, listen, but taking my leave, I departed for Macedonia. This is the only time I know of in the New Testament where we find the Apostle Paul with an open door to preach the gospel, and he doesn't take it. He's, like, He's got the open door. I'm here. I've got a purpose. I've got an open door. But my internal struggles are so great right now, I just can't do it. I cannot physically do it. And he associates it to the fact that Titus didn't show up. I was really looking forward to him coming, and he didn't come. And now in our text in chapter 7, he says, God comforts the downcast. And how did he do it? Because Titus showed up. So, so not only does God comfort us th um, through his promises, but God comforts us through others. And it's often through others bringing the promises. Listen to this verse. It's in the book of Philemon. I just love the phrase. We read Paul writing, For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Isn't that a great phrase? Like, this is what this guy's known for. When he shows up, downcast people are encouraged. When he shows up, struggling people are strengthened. In, in the Old Testament, we have a vivid illustration of this. We, we know the story of David 
And David has is, is been anointed by God to be the king of Israel. But Saul is unwilling to submit himself to the, to the will of God. And so Saul turns all of his attention on, on, on attempting to kill David. So David's fled out into the wilderness, and he's, he's struggling. I mean, he's gone from being the worship leader in the palace, a general in the army. He's, a, he's married to the king's daughter. It's like all this, this amazing forward progress in his life, and now all of a sudden he's sleeping in a cave with a bunch of criminals. It's very difficult. And he says, uh, the, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 23, that Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in, in the woods and strengthened his hands in God. His hands are hanging down. He's downcast. He's struggling. And Jonathan shows up and strengthens, his, strengthens him. And we're told how he strengthened him. He simply told him the promises of God. We read in verse 17 of 1 Samuel 23, he said to him, this is Jonathan to David, do not fear for the hand of my Saul, my father shall not find you. You shall be king of Israel. I'll be next to you. Even my father knows this. David was strengthened because all Jonathan did was say, listen, didn't God anoint you as king? Are you king yet? Then you're indestructible. God's got a plan for your life. And David was strengthened by that. So, so uh, the, the first thing I want to sort of draw out from this is if your diagnosis is that you're struggling and you're struggling because the pressures of life are squeezing upon you and the pressures of life are producing anxiety or whatever within you, then the, the cure for that diagnosis is a healthy diet of the promises of God. And, and, and listen, and to be ready to receive those promises or instruction or correction from others. Now, you know, pill bottles always have warnings on them, right? If you take this, you're going to grow a third eye, but it will heal your skin disorder. And so there's a warning. Well, there's a warning that comes with this. Um, there's a passage in the Old Testament where, where Jacob hears word that his son Joseph has been killed. It's not true, but it was true to Jacob, right? It was a, what he heard and the evidence for him, and his heart was broken. He was devastated by it. And I, you know, I can't imagine anything more devastating than that. And if you've gone through that, that's a, that's a great challenge that, you know, having a, a son or a daughter pass away, that's such a difficulty. And, and, you know, Jacob experiences all of the woe and the grief and the anguish that goes with that. But the Bible tells us that God was providing comfort for him, but that Jacob refused to be comforted. There were promises God had for him. There were things that God wanted to do to mend his broken heart, but Jacob refused the comfort that God offered him. And I want to encourage you, like you may be going through a challenge. You might be going through something that's causing that anxiety. God wants to comfort you. He wants to lift you out of that. He wants to strengthen you through that. He wants to, you know, carry you. God has more for you. But listen, we have to be willing to embrace the promises. We have to be willing, like Jeremiah, to, here's your promise. I'm going to take it and I'm going to eat it and let it light me on fire. Now, that being said, we've kind of uh, looked at Paul and we have uh, seen the, the circumstances. Let's see the effect that the promises had upon him. Look at verse 4. We'll go through this part pretty quickly. Verse 4, 
Paul writes, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with what? Four people. I am filled with comfort. Last line. Here's your chance. And I am exceedingly what? In what? In tribulation. Did his circumstances change? He's, he uses one of the worst words in the Bible. He uses the word tribulation. That's a terrible word. There are word banks that we have. We might, we might have a heading for a word bank called suffering or difficulty. Okay, so let's call our word bank difficulty. In that word bank are a host of different words, right? All fit under this, this thing of difficulty. Can I tell you the worst word in the word bank of difficulty is the word tribulation? It's the worst word. It's the worst type of suffering. And Paul says, my circumstances didn't change. But I have, I am filled with comfort and I'm exceedingly joyful. Both of those words, filled and exceeding, mean to overflow. I mean, it's, it's pouring out over the top. It's more than you can contain. And so Paul went to the doctor. Paul was diagnosed with acute suffering from troublesome circumstances syndrome. Okay, that's what he had. And so his doctor prescribed to him a regiment of embracing the promises of God. And he promises him a full recovery. That's what happens. So if, you, if that's your diagnosis, like, hey, I'm, I'm, I got this turmoil. I've got this difficulty. I'm suffering from what's going on in the world syndrome. Here's what I need to do. Grab hold of the promises. Cling to God's promises. And let God revive your heart. Now that said, let's take a look at our second patient. That is the Corinthians themselves. Because Paul's going to describe them starting there at verse 8. In verse 8, and we already read through it. I'm going to read just the opening part of it. For even, are you at verse 8? Okay, good, because you're going to be quizzed. For even if I made you, what? Sorry with my letter, I did not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you, what? Though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made, what? But that you're, what? Led to, what? Okay, we're going to stop there because we already read through this. But listen, eight times in these verses, eight times Paul uses the word sorry. Eight times. Now, the word sorry has maybe two meanings. One meaning, and maybe how we use it most often, is an apology, right? When someone says they're sorry. Now, often the most common apology sounds like this. I'm sorry that what I did made you feel that way. Okay. Is that an apology? No, that's not. Okay. An apology is when you actually take ownership for what you did. Okay. So, but this is not a Bible study on apologizing because that's not how Paul uses the word here. He's not, he's not apologizing to them. Listen, I know it's kind of rough in that first letter. Um, you know, I kind of, I called you guys carnal. I told you, you were behaving like unbelievers. You were acting like baby Christians. Okay. I, hey, listen, I'm sorry. I was kind of rough. He's not saying that. He's not apologizing here. Paul uses the word sorry, uses it eight times, and he uses it here in, this, in its second definition. And that is sorry is a condition. It's a condition, and it's a condition that's brought about by certain behaviors. It's a, it's a condition that symptoms are internal turmoil. 
A person who is in a sorry state is a person who is suffering internally. They've got the same things that Paul describes himself having. He's got this, this downcast or this pressure on him or his insides feeling as though they have been twisted. And so Paul says, listen, I'm writing to you guys because I know internally you are struggling. You're going through it. You're feeling like you're being squeezed. You're downcast. But listen, the cause of their internal suffering was way different than Paul's. Paul's was brought about by doing exactly what God wanted him to do. He was traveling around telling people about Jesus. He was investing in the life of believers, helping them to grow and develop in the Lord. And he was even writing to the Corinthians and having to correct them on their behaviors. Quick show of hands. How many of you like being corrected? How many of you, it's like, you know what? My favorite thing is when somebody comes and tells me what I'm doing is wrong. Okay? You're putting too much sugar in your coffee. Like, who made you the coffee police? Like, what gives you the right to measure the amount of sugars in my coffee? I can put however much sugar in my coffee. I want to put my coffee. I don't care what you think. I don't care who you are. Mom, stop talking to me like that. Okay? So, right? I mean, we don't like to be corrected. I took a, I took a course in college, and, a, and a, there was a major chunk of this course that talked about how to confront someone. Okay, now I wasn't in college yesterday. Okay, it was a couple years ago. And, uh, but listen, in this course, we learned how to communicate with somebody when you have to confront them. Now, um, the way your actions made me feel, like, what? Okay, we're so fragile, we're so delicate, we have to dance around having to confront somebody. Paul's out serving the Lord, and his challenges, his, his difficulty is because he's, he's going to places that are difficult and dangerous, he's investing in the lives of others, and he's having to correct people that hate being corrected. Their suffering was caused by something totally different. Their suffering was caused by misbehaving. They were doing something wrong. How do we know that? Paul told them they needed to repent, and he goes on to talk about true repentance and true sorrow talks about how godly sorrow produces real repentance and, and ungodly sorrow doesn't. Their suffering was caused by the fact that they were doing the wrong thing. Now, the word repent, is, it's a word that speaks first to the mind. It's a word that means to change the way you're thinking. And when you change the way you're thinking, then you start to change the way you're behaving. Right? We, we have a term today, like the term aha moment. Right? You've heard that phrase? You had an aha moment. Okay? Uh, a, a more scholastic, uh, scholarly way of saying that would be an epiphany. Okay? Where like, ah, and the light turns on and you realize something. It's like, oh my gosh, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And your mind changes and so your behaviors change. You start acting differently because you're seeing things differently. It happens so often in relationships. Happens so often in marriage where there's a conflict between, between the spouses and they're upset because, because they both think they're right. They're both looking at the same circumstances. They're, they're, they're you know, taking the data and they're, they're you know, summarizing the data and they're coming to a conclusion and they've come to two totally different conclusions and that results in conflict. 
And then there's this blow up, right? Somebody's upset, somebody slams the door, somebody cries. And there's this challenge, right? And then they leave, and then all of a sudden, ah, God speaks. And it's like, you dummy, you can't behave like that. You're totally wrong. And when you had that moment, then you're willing to go back and go, listen, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have treated you that way. I was wrong, right? We, repentance affects the mind and the mind affects the behavior. And so Paul is saying that the problem with these guys is that they are doing something that they shouldn't be doing and the solution is they need to stop doing it. it God designed us to feel bad when we do stuff wrong. He designed us that way. You are designed to feel bad when you do stuff you shouldn't do. Now, it is possible, according to the Bible and empirical data, it's possible for us to sear our conscience so that we can do wrong things and not feel bad about it. But listen carefully. If you don't feel bad about something that you're doing that is wrong, it doesn't make it okay it means something in you is broken. That's what it means. It's a testimony that something in your life is broken because you were designed by God to feel bad when you do that because God doesn't want us to do that because it's going to be destructive to ourselves, our relationship with the Lord, and the people that we love and care about. And so he writes to these guys and he says, here's the solution. You need to stop doing the things that you're doing that are wrong. Now, here's what I'm going to do. We're, we're, we're coming, the, the plane's starting to land. We had that real boring part through the center where you guys needed a soda to wake up. Okay, now we're starting to land, so tray, tray tables up. Um, but listen, listen, I'm going to give you something. It's, it's, it's going to have a very, very short shelf life. I'm going to bestow upon you, according to the power that's been invested in me by Josiah Graves and his brother, Robert, and uh, I'm going to give to you an honorary medical degree. Okay? I'm going to give that to you. You all pretend to have it because you go to Dr. Google and self-diagnose and, and, or you take weird family home remedies. But, but listen, I'm going to give you an honorary doctorate degree. And with that doctorate degree, I'm going to ask you to examine our patient, our second patient. Okay? This patient has come in and they are, they are feeling downcast. They're feeling like they're the orange in the vice. They feel like there's no pressure relief valve. They're struggling. But the cause of their struggle is that they're misbehaving. Is the, is the prescription for them to embrace a promise of God? Is that the prescription? Like if you're, if you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing and you're feeling terrible because of it, is the solution to go home and crank up the worship music? Is that the solution? Now, listen, if you're going through a rough season in life, man, turning up the worship music is a great thing to do. In this last year, we've listened to way more worship music in our house and car than the whole rest of our life combined, okay? I mean, it's just, it's just so refreshing. But listen, if you're misbehaving, is that the cure? No, it's not. The cure is stop doing what you're doing. Do you know that there's a, there's a passage of Scripture where that actually is attempted? Saul, we mentioned him early, the, the, the king of Israel, he's disobeying God. He won't take the crown off of his head and put it on David. That's what he's supposed to do. 
He's supposed to take, he's supposed to bow himself under David's leadership now, and he's supposed to use all his resources and all his influence to support David and the call of God that he has on his life. And he's fighting against God. And he's got this radical internal turmoil as a result. And you know what he did? He turned up the worship music. He had David come into the palace and play worship songs for him. And David would play music. And sometimes it would calm him down. Sometimes he'd throw spears at David. Okay? So, but the, but it, it, that's not the solution. If our problem is that we're misbehaving, then the solution is we need to stop doing what we're doing. And repentance, here's our final point. Our first point was God brings comfort. Our second point, God brings comfort through his promises. Our third point, he brings comfort through others. Our fourth point is this, repentance is a good thing. Last thing we'll look at, take a look at verse 11. Paul writes, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, okay, or you repented. Notice what diligence it produced in you. When you repented, something was produced in you. Raw materials were formed into something positive. And here's what he says. He said, you had a clearing of yourself. You had indignation. You had fear. You had vehement desire. You had zeal. And you had vindication. Things were produced. There was a clearing. The guilt went away. There was uh, a fear and indignation, afraid of getting involved in those things again, and, and an anger and a hatred towards sin and the suffering it brings in our lives. And then finally, vehement desire and zeal. If there's one thing maybe missing from, the, from our lives as followers of Jesus, it's, it's this idea of vehemence or, or zeal. This, this sense of like passion for the things that are God's. I want to close. I don't know if the worship team comes back up. I didn't ask. So if you guys come back up, now's the time to do that. If you don't, chill. But <clears throat> listen, I just want to give you a couple quotes. Okay. D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist from the 19th century. And D.L. Moody said this, the world is yet to see what can be accomplished by a person wholly devoted to God. He was a guy that impacted the world for the kingdom of God. And he says, listen, the world is yet to see what would happen if a person totally devoted themselves to God. Vehemence, zeal. Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott was a missionary. Jim Elliott wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He gave up everything to go share the gospel with a remote group of people. He said, that's not foolish. I'm giving up what I can't keep anyway to gain what I can never lose, zeal. Um, the, the ancient um, uh, church leader from the second century named Polycarp, he, he, as he was being put to death, Polycarp is credited as saying, 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And then listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, others had trials of mockings and scourgings, of chains and of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world is not worthy. Isn't that what we need? I mean, isn't that what we need? Is, is, is in our life something that would be like, listen, the, this world, is temporary. I'm going to eternity and I'm going to live so devoted to Jesus here, 
nothing in this world can, can stop me from the commitment that I have to Christ. That comes when we turn fully to the Lord, when we surrender ourselves to Him. So, Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you, Lord, that it, in, in some degree it examines us. Some degree it looks at the symptoms in our life and provides us with, with a, a, a prescription. And so, Lord, for any here this morning who are facing challenges because they're involved in stuff they shouldn't be involved in, your word talks about how you grant repentance. And so, Lord, we would just pray for a measure of your grace to be infused into their life right at this moment that you'd set them free. And for any who are struggling through circumstances, they want to run into the graveyard because the challenge is so great. Lord, I want to pray that you'd infuse your grace. Give them promises. Give them comfort. Uh, turn their suffering into exceeding joy and, and great comfort. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.